Let's prepare to get into the word. We will, um, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 5 this morning. This is our last Sunday in the book of 1 John. We've been working our way through it, um, hitting the, uh, several of the different passages in each of the different chapters. And today we are looking at the last chapter of the book. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first six verses of this chapter, and we're going to work our way through that as we um, as we read that. So if you will pray with me before we open the word, uh, that would be wonderful. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that speaks to us through the word. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to each of us, exactly where we are today, where we need to hear from you. Lord, I, I pray that you will fill my words with the power of your Holy Spirit because without your power, there is nothing there. It is all you. Speak to us, I pray today. Lord, we want your will in this time as we dedicate it to looking at your word. And we want your will in our lives. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in the first verses of chapter 5. So if you read along with me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the, it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. The word of the Lord. All right. Through the whole book of 1 John, John has been speaking primarily to a group of Christians or people who called themselves Christians that were a really dangerous sect of Christianity. They were dangerous because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed more that he was just a good teacher. They believed that he was the Messiah, but they didn't fully go into the idea that he was divine or that he was the Son of God. And so John has touched on this multiple times throughout his letter, and this is where he's wanting to put that final nail in the coffin of the argument. That this is Jesus, who is the Christ, and that he is born of God. So, <clears throat> we start here in verse 1. He says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ believes that he is born of God. This word Christ comes from the Greek word, which is Christos. It means appointed one or anointed one, set out, set apart. This is the Greek word that is referred to as, uh, that refers to the Hebrew word of Messiah. Messiah is this, it basically means the redeemer or the liberator is the, is what the term in Hebrew means. And the Israelites have been looking forward to the Messiah for a very, very long time. The Messiah has been foretold since the very beginning, since even 
just after Adam and Eve, God has told them that there will be one who will come and he will, cr he will crush the head of the serpent, which is Christ crushing the head of the devil. They didn't understand that to mean the, the Messiah at that time. And it wasn't until later with the prophets who began to foretell of the Messiah coming that the Israelites began to really look for this. They looked for the person who was going to come and who was going to liberate them from oppression. They were, he was going to be the one that would set them free. There were two views of the Messiah at the time of Jesus. There was the low view or the earthly view, which is that he would be a, um, a person who came from the line of David, that he would be this military leader who would liberate them from the Romans who were oppressing them. He would rise up and bring Israel back into its place as a power in the region. There were many groups in the, of the Hebrews, the Israelites, who were called zealots, who were desperate for this Messiah, so desperate that they felt that if they would create these military moments of a rebellion, that this Messiah would just arise and, fall, and, and come to place where he was supposed to be. And it was that way throughout most of the Roman oppression that they wanted, they would do these, these moments. And there was just this tentative peace between the Romans and the Jews. Uh, and it was, it was a balancing act because the Jews wanted freedom to be able to have religion and to, to worship their God. And the Romans were willing to let that happen as long as peace was maintained. But these zealots wanted the Messiah to come. And so they would create these tense rebellious moments that would put Rome on guard, and so they would tighten down on the Jews. It made the Jewish leaders very nervous. The second view of the Messiah was the high view, the view that it would be this heavenly figure that would come to redeem them spiritually. Out of the two, the low view, the earthly view, was the one that was most predominant was the one that most uh, uh, believed and, and wanted to have happen. The high view was a minority. Even the disciples who Jesus groomed and was constantly talking to about him being this spiritual Messiah, they also still saw him as this, this leader that would physically liberate them from Rome. It wasn't until after Jesus died on the cross and resurrected that it fully came, they fully came into understanding of realizing that he wasn't that kind of a Messiah. All right? But that's what he was. He was the high view Messiah. He was this heavenly figure, the one born of God who would come and that was going to spiritually redeem the people. He was there not to liberate them from the bondages of Rome, but to liberate them from the even more dangerous bondages of sin. The thing that would lead them to eternal death. So right at the beginning of this chapter, John is saying, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. There wasn't a lot of argument on that. The, this group he's writing to, they agreed that he was the Messiah, but... They didn't want to believe he was born of God. And so he puts that in there to really emphasize he is the Messiah because he is born of God. 
And he's saying that if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then you should also believe he's born of God. And you should love him the way you love the Father. And that you should love those who love him the way that you love the Father. He goes on to verse 2 and he says, This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. The Jews were very used to this concept of following God's commandments. They had lived under the law for their whole lives since Moses. They had had the law and they had lived according to certain sets of rules, the commandments of God, and they knew that if they did these things, they would be considered holy. But the problem was is that no one could fulfill the commandments. Someone always messed up. Everyone always failed. Because we're human. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Happy Mother's Day. In case case your mother didn't tell you you're not perfect, I'm here to tell you, you're not perfect. People aren't perfect. We mess up. There was no way for them to fulfill the commandments of God. But John is saying here in verse 2 that the way that we know that you are living in, in right relationship with God is by loving him and keeping his commands. Now, John is not referring to the Ten Commandments. He's not referring to the 790 commandments the law had under it. He's referring to the two commandments Jesus gave them. Love God, he already said that, love God, and love others as yourself. He says if you are going to be a follower of God, if you are going to claim to love God, then you must love God and and he goes on in verse said in verse three, saying that this is what love is. It is to keep God's commandments. It is uh, to love God, to love others, and these commandments are not burdensome. They shouldn't be a problem. They're not a heavy weight to carry. John's saying, the law of Moses was burdensome. It was impossible to carry. There were Jews who didn't even try. There were Jews who tried so hard and lived in shame every day of their life because they failed. It was burdensome. So John has put us into a place of asking how. Because he says that we are to keep God's commands and that they're not going to be burdensome. But God's commands are burdensome if you're doing it on your own. Loving God and loving others under your own power is hard. It's impossible. I am not deluded in believing that I struggle at loving others the way Christ loved me when I do it on my own. I fail. I struggle in that. And I'm sure you do too. And the only way that this statement can be true 
is if we remember that it isn't by our own strength that we are to keep these commandments. It isn't under your own ability to love that you have to keep this commandment to love others. It is through the power of Christ. It is through Christ in you that you can then love others around you. And I would even argue that it's actually more work that if you love God and you have this relationship in a right standing, because when this relationship's in right standing, then God's love flows into you. Eventually you fill up and you have more love than you can hold and it overflows out of you. And it should naturally flow out into other people. And I would argue that it is almost more work for somebody who says that they believe and love God to hold that love back inside and to not just let it naturally flow out of you. If you find that the relationships you have with other people are challenged, you need to take a, a step back and say, okay, I am either being the, the love dam that's holding God's love back, or there's something I need to do here that, is, that needs to be realigned. Because the natural flow, the natural consequence of my relationship with God being in right standing is that love will flow out. We become the conduit of God's love to others around us. Remember in, in chapter 4, John said that you're, cra you're crazy. You're straight up crazy if you think that my love for God stops with just me and doesn't, like I should just, I should automatically want to love others around me. When we remember that it's not through our own love that we have to keep this commandment, this commandment should become easy. It should become natural. And that is a way easier to say than to do sometimes. And I'm not, I, I realize that. I realize that. It's a, it's a decision I have to make every day to make sure that I don't, I don't stop the flow of God's love out of me. It's a decision that I have to make every time I go into a conversation with people to make sure that I am I'm releasing God's love. I'm, I'm being the conduit of God's love. And then it's my, it's my responsibility every day to make sure that this relationship stays lined up so that these relationships stay lined up the right way. Verse 4 says, so verse 4 and verse 5, this is where we're going to land today. This is where we're going to sit for a little bit. It says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John goes on to talk about how we have overcome the world. He says Jesus overcame the world. How did he overcome the world? When Jesus died on the cross, and we've talked about this for several weeks, and I apologize if you feel like I'm repeating myself, but this is what the Bible tells us, and, I'm, and he, it repeats itself. So I'm going to tell you again that when Jesus died on the cross, Every sin, from the very, very beginning all the way to when Eve first sinned to whoever sins at the very, very end of time, 
all of those sins came and converged in Jesus, and he became the embodiment of every sin in reality, and he crucified it on the cross. He killed the sin. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered the sin and death, making it null and void. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead victorious and stands victorious still today at the right hand of the Father. And it says that anyone who believes in God, anyone who believes in Jesus as the Son of God, anyone who has accepted him into his life, into their life, that person too has overcome the world. The victory of Jesus doesn't stay with just Jesus, but goes into you and becomes a living embodiment of your life. We become the victory of Jesus. We overcome. John goes on to repeat himself. He then goes on to again say that victory, um, the victory that has overcome the world has come through our faith. Why does he repeat himself? It's a literary tactic that the Hebrews used to emphasize a point. What he was saying, it was to make what he said unmistakable. He wanted you to not miss it. He wanted you to understand that if you were born of God, if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and he lives inside of you, that the victory that has come is yours and has overcome the world. So what does that mean to overcome the world? What does that mean to be an overcomer? I think that in history, the church has misunderstood what this means. Because when, when I hear overcomer or I've conquered the world, because that's the, that's the meaning behind these words here, it means that somebody has taken over and is now in charge. And that's what the Israelites hoped Jesus would do. They hoped he would overcome and take over and free them. That's not what he was doing. He was overcoming sin, not the Romans. And the, the church in general, in the history of the church, I think they this idea of taking over and running things. For a long time, that's what the church did. It made all the rules. It told everyone, it told everyone whether or not they were going into heaven or not. It, it was, they overcame the world around them. And I think that's a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of the victory of Jesus. Because the victory of Jesus, as we see at the beginning of this chapter, doesn't come from power. It comes from love. Because anybody who loves the Father will love others around them. That is the evidence, is that you're loving others around you. And when we come in power, love can be hard to see. Now, throughout history, there has always been Christians in the church who have loved others, who have been examples of Christ's love to the world around them. So don't get me wrong when I, when I say that. We as Christians are called to 
this life of love. So if it, if it means that we're not to come in power and to be over, overcomers in a conquering way, what does it mean? When we look at Jesus' life, it means the opposite of that. Jesus told his disciples that if you want to be the greatest, then you need to become the least of these. You need to become the servant to all, not the ruler of all. You know, Jesus is saying this as he's washing the feet of the disciples. Like, here is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God incarnate, meaning God in human form. Here is Jesus. He should be on a gold gilded pedestal. He should be adored by the entire world. And here he is in a room with 12 of his best friends on his knees with a, a, a bucket of water washing their feet. Now, we don't understand that very well because we don't wash each other's feet and we don't have people at our houses who do wash our feet. But this was a very common thing in the Jewish culture. Everybody got their feet washed every time they went into the house. They would get rid of the dirt and the other stuff that was on their feet so the house would stay clean. This job in the household was given to the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. See the repetitiveness? I'm emphasizing my point. The lowest servant in the house. This is the guy who is below the person who cleans out the toilets. Like, I mean, it's not the job the servants want. Because think about it. Everyone walks everywhere they go. They wear sandals. They don't have shoes. They're walking in the dirt and the mud and the other things that get dropped in the street by animals. Use your imagination what that is. All of that has to be washed off. And here is God incarnate on his knees doing the job that no servant wants to do to his disciples, the ones who called him master. And Peter, Peter objects and he says, no way will I let you wash my feet. I should be washing yours. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand, Peter. You, like, we need to become the servant to all. I am not here to be lording over you. So when we talk about overcoming the world, we as Christians don't come out, out into the world and go, listen, we've got this all right and you're all wrong and you're going to go to hell and you need to be saved and let us show you the right way to live. When we overcome the world, we overcome the world like Christ did by going out into the world and we wash the feet of the dirty. We love those who are unlovable. We care for those who are being rejected and lost. We take care of those in need. When we do that, we live out the victory of Jesus every day of our lives. Because it's through his love that we have received victory, and through his love that we pass out, others can experience his victory as well. Now, 
we can't do this on our own. And I don't say that in the way that I've already said it in the sermon once, that you need the power of Jesus. You do. But that's not why I'm saying it this time. I'm saying it as in, you can't be a lone wolf on this. You can't go out and do this all on your own. We need each other. We need community. We need to be able to serve in our community. And when I say our community, I mean this body, the church. We need to be willing to serve each other, to live out God's love to each other. And as we do that, then our church becomes a living embodiment of God's love and victory that then can get spread out into the community. When we do it all on our own, you're limited. Yes, you can have victory in Jesus by yourself, but it's not the complete it's not the completeness that you get when you're part of the church, when you're part of the community of faith. When we're on our own, it's dangerous because we can, we can get wild ideas about what Jesus has told us or wild ideas about who Jesus was. And if we're not part of the community, we don't have somebody who can tell us, hey, that's a weird idea. I don't know if that's accurate. <laughs> Let's look at the scriptures together, and I'll show you how that's not accurate. It's a dangerous thing. It's the thing that caused these groups that John is contesting here because they got a wild idea about Jesus. And they went off without the community. And then they got others who they convinced about their idea, and they created their own little community. And so John's saying, hey, whoa, guys, let's take a break, because your idea is crazy. When we live out the love of God in our lives, we become the beacon of victory to the world around us. We become something others want. And again, it's through our service, not our show of force. It's not through our correctness that people go, man, I want to be correct too. It's because we were there when they were hurting. It's because we were there to meet a need that they had. We were there when everyone else seemed to be ignoring them. And I'm not only talking about the people outside of our building. There are people in our community, in this church, who feel that way still, who feel that way. And we're called to love all of them. We're called to be that for, the, for those who need it. Called to be the least among all servant to all. And when we do that, we get to experience the true victory of Christ. When we do that, the victory of Christ is made complete in us. It's made complete in you. It's made complete in the church. And we get to recreate that out in the world around us too participants in that victory.
you pray for me. Lord, you are amazing. I cannot put to words how thankful I am for the love that you've given us. I thank you that you took my brokenness and you are working to restore it every day. I thank you for this community of faith as we grow in you. I thank you for our community that we can be part of, that we can be an example of your love to. Thank you for your word and what you've had to say to us today. Help us to be an example of your love in a world that is so desperate for it. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to show the world the love you gave for me. I'm longing for the world to know the glory of the King. I want to live like that. Give it all I have so that everything I say and do points to this benediction. As you go this week, may you love the world around you, living the victory of Christ every day through the way that we treat others. Now go. May the, may the grace of the Lord be upon you. You are dismissed.